The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Leslie Picker here of uh, Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, meantime, uh, Carvana's CEO and the CFO Block coming up this hour. Two of the market's biggest earnings movers this morning. But let's start with a look at the overall indexes this morning. You've got a nice uh, picture shaping up here. The Nasdaq, a little bit of the underperformer here, down about a tenth of a percent. But the Dow up about half a percentage point at this hour. That's where we'll begin this morning. S&P just south of 5,100 after crossing it earlier today. As the market digests this NVIDIA versus the Fed narrative forming in sentiment, TIAA Wealth Management Chief Investment Officer Neil Mukherjee is here with us at Post 9. Neil, good to see you again. Good to see you. Interesting. A lot of discussion about how equities have been managed to set aside some of the obsession with the rate environment because of the earnings that MAG7 are delivering. Can that continue? We think it can. Uh, by the way, earnings are going to be the big focus in 2024. Valuation was the game in 2023. It's a little bit tricky because technology has been driving the earnings picture in Q4. It's expected to drive the earnings picture in Q1. That's where the problem lies slightly and the complication is because tech and the top 10 tech names, uh, the S&P 500 top 10 names, they're more than 30% of the index and they're contributing about 24% in terms of the earnings. So they're punching above their weight slightly, but not so much. That's where the complication is because they have to meet their lofty expectations, meet and beat and probably raise for that market to stay stable and the other parts of the market to come up. That's where the focus will be this year. Of the non-tech baskets that would contribute ostensibly over time, which would you look to first? Yeah, communication services is one area that we, we like. Uh, we've kept our focus there. It's less about the sector-to-sector -sector ideas here. It's more about companies which have high-quality balance sheets. It's companies, large over small-cap companies, I think, will still dominate. U.S. companies over international companies will dominate. We're still focused on the tech sector. We're being more selective there. We're, we're focusing on the companies which can provide exposure to the AI theme, the cloud computing theme, as well as the cybersecurity theme. Com services, I mentioned, is interesting because valuations are a little bit stretched, but growth rates are pretty spectacular there, too. And free cash flow is, is quite strong. And you're, we're focusing on companies which can give that profitability focus and efficiency focus. So it's more about going to each sector, and there's some specific names that we like. Hmm. So when I hear you say basically that you know you can kind of ignore the day-to-day the -day Fed speak and, and the potential moves on interest rates in a, in a way that you haven't maybe been able to do in the last few years and focus more on Q4 fundamentals, that to me sounds like more of a stock picker's market and that there's going to be genuine opportunity to deliver alpha this year. So if you're an investor watching right now, how do you think is the best way to accomplish that? What are some of the, the screenings that they should be doing, uh, you know, kind of thematically in order to capitalize on some of these trends? Well, the one thing is very clear that the Fed will be very important this year as well. Uh, when the disinflationary process is playing out quite nicely, there are some bumps along the way. But I do think the market ran ahead and started to price in six rate cuts. That was too much. But after we got that good GDP print, we got a few firm inflation prints, and the Fed themselves pushed back on the narrative of aggressive rate cuts. The market has reined that expectation in. 
Now I think it's much more in line. The market is expecting three rate cuts, four rate cuts, which I think is a, is a good number. The bottom line, Leslie, is that the Fed is standing on the doorstep of a soft landing, and they'll try to walk through that door. But they have to be very careful because if they are too aggressive, inflation might come back in a wave. Yeah, that was, so that's a dominating feature. That was the great part of Jefferson's presentation yesterday where he, he looked at past cycles yep. and said by the time we started to ease, you did have core PCE with a low, very low two or maybe a high one. That's right. You think they want to be that certain again? Yeah, they have to be certain. We think that they will start to probably cut towards the middle of this year because they want to be certain, they want to be convinced that the Fed that the interest rates or inflation is moving down towards that 2% target on a more sustainable basis. In some ways, this reminds us of the mid-1990s. In the mid-1990s, in 1994, for example, the market was in the third year of an economic recovery, and the Fed aggressively hiked interest rates from 3% to 6% because they were worried about inflation. But in 1994, they pivoted quickly and they cut interest rates three times uh, to the uh, beginning of 1995, and that led to that elusive improbable soft landing. It just reminds us a little bit of that. And that's why we're telling investors, look at earnings, but stay invested in equities because the soft landing probability has gone up. The AI tailwinds are blowing very strongly and the Fed is inclined to cut rates into a sufficiently resilient economy. As I think about the earnings that we're covering this morning, Warner Brothers Discovery, Carvana, Block, I mean, a lot of these earnings comprise significant cost cutting throughout 2023, some of which resulted in, you know, tens of thousands of, of headcount reductions. And so as you kind of juxtapose what's going on with these earnings reports that we're seeing lately with the overall impact on the economy, namely just the reductions in, in headcount, how do you how do you look at that as it pertains to uh, the potential for a soft landing and the investability of these names? It's interesting because the nature of this post-COVID economy has been, we've seen soft patches throughout. We saw manufacturing take a hit. We saw technology take a hit back in 2022. Now that's come roaring back. We saw the consumer sector, the retail sector take a hit. The office sector has taken a hit. And to your point earlier, Leslie, it's all about stock picking. It's picking the sector. It's picking quality. Because even though economic growth looks quite resilient, there's still a lot of risks out there, like Cree is a major risk. The Fed still hasn't conquered inflation fully. So you have to be in quality segments of the market where the fundamentals are good, the balance sheets are good. And if you can get cash return for your investments, that's the best place to be. Yeah, uh, Flo is definitely demonstrating that last week. Uh, Neil, thanks. Good to see you. Thank you. Let's get to the biggest earnings mover of the hour. Take a look at Carvana. Just mentioned it soaring this morning on the back of a strong Q4, posting its first ever profit and issuing upbeat guidance for the quarter ahead. You can see their shares up 32 percent. And that, of course, is bad news for the short sellers, with Carvana being one of the street's most shorted stocks. I think about a third of their float is currently shorted. Joining us now in a first on CNBC interview, Carvana's CEO, Ernie Garcia. Ernie, thank you very much for being here. So you've got this first quarter EBITDA well ahead of consensus here, helping drive that stock price much higher. Uh, can you share some color on your upbeat outlook for 2024? Sure, I absolutely will. But but I, I think I got to start first by thanking the team. I think, um, you know, you mentioned our short interest in the lead up. I, I think 2022 was a tough year for us, and the team came together in a way that I just think is absolutely amazing. I think it's very easy when you go through a tough time for people to fall apart and, and disintegrate. And our team came together and did our best work that we've ever done. And, and so to everyone on the Carvana team, everyone on the Odessa team, cannot thank you guys enough. You've done incredible work, and that's why we're here. So thank you so much. I, I think 
you know, looking forward to Q1, we're in a great spot. I think, you know, we have really uh, got ourselves to a place where I think the ball is in our hand. We're in control. We're in the best position we've ever been. And we just need to keep executing. I think the trends are very strong across the entire income statement. Uh, we're delivering great customer experiences. We're in incredible uh, competitive position. So we're just excited. And we think from here, we just got to keep executing and things are going to go our way. Okay, let's talk about some of those trends, because key to your story, of course, is consumer confidence as well as affordability dynamics in the car market. Uh, Those have been pressured in differing ways over the last few years. But do you think most of that is in the past now? And how sticky do you think the potential improvements are for this year? So I think, you know, all the kind of macroeconomic factors are are very tough to call. And I think we try to stay away from calling them. I, th- I think, you know, perspectives on those can change very quickly. Uh, I think what we've seen recently that we're excited about is we've seen car prices drop. That's very helpful for our customers. Uh, that means more people can come back to the market. And then I think, you know, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing, which is staying focused on us and staying focused on our customers, delivering great experiences and getting more efficient all the time as we do it. That makes their experiences simpler and and our financial efficiency higher. So I think we're going to stay focused on us. We're going to keep turning the wheel and we'll we'll see where that takes us. (laughs) Turning the wheel. Nice pun there. Uh, Speaking of efficiencies, you underwent a significant cost control and restructuring uh, of your debt program in 2023. I'm curious if you feel like you're now in a good place to start ramping up spending on advertising and inventory um, and reinvesting in some growth potential, given, you know, what you see as as a pretty decent backdrop for you. Sure. Well, you know, we're we're now approximately, you know, 1% of the market. um, So we're very small compared to this huge market. Uh, You know, over the last year, we sold uh, you know, a little over 300,000 cars, uh, and we probably have capacity to sell millions. You know, our goals are, are to sell millions of cars, to buy millions of cars from customers, to be the largest, most profitable automotive retailer. So I think between here and where we're going, there's a lot of room for growth. There's a lot of room uh, for things to go very well. We also, I think, uh, you know, have done very well over the last two years by staying focused on what we're working on. Um, and I think we want to see a lot of the projects through that we're working on today. Uh, so we're going to see those through, and then we're going to start to transition into kind of our longer-term march of continually improving uh, our financials and also uh, continually growing into that big opportunity we've got. You know, markets and the street is really obsessed right now, Ernie, with uh, any kind of, I guess they would consider it a dangerous reversal in moderating inflation trends. One things we, one of the things we've been leaning on is, is the moderation in used cars. Is there a reason to think that might reverse as well? You know, I, I think we try to stay away from calling, you know, big, uh, complicated macro uh, numbers. Uh, but, but I do think the trends today are clearly for moderation of, of car prices. So we hope that continues. And I think there's good evidence that should continue. Uh, you know, generally, the big fundamental there is what's going on with new car prices. And, and the driver of that is what's going on with new car supply. We have absolutely seen new new car supply ramp up pretty quickly. We're seeing much more or many more incentives in, in the new car business. And so that always kind of pressures uh, used car prices. So our hope and current belief is that prices will continue to go down, but we will see. And then in terms of inventory management, can you afford to be a little more aggressive on that front? I think I, I think we can... I think we've got to see through what we're currently working on. I think that's that, that's the most important thing for us to stay focused on. I think there's no question that in the medium run, growing our inventory to give our customers even more selection is going to be a big part of our strategy. I think you know our goal is to be a place where customers come to get the simplest experience, to get the best price and the best selection. If we can check those three boxes, we're in a great spot. 
um, and our business model lends itself to giving customers great selection because we can have cars in a nationwide inventory that we deliver to customers' doors as soon as today. Um, so I think inventory will be a big part of our strategy. I think the way that car prices are moving at any point in time is probably not going to be a huge driver of that. I think instead it'll be uh, more what our focus is at any point in time. Uh, so, so I think that's probably what, what's going to drive the inventory strategy. Ernie, uh, the swaps market is pricing in fewer and a lower magnitude of rate cuts than it had just even weeks ago. Uh, how does that impact your business as it pertains to the affordability dynamic for uh, customers looking to purchase cars? I mean, do you, do you need to see significant cuts uh, or do you think that things, can, things will be okay this year uh, if we just see, say, three or four? Yeah, well, I, I think you know our job is to be positioned for the environment as it is at any point in time, and so I think we're positioned for the environment as it is today. Uh, you know, we've we've got interest rates that are facing customers are driven by the prevailing and expected rates in the market. Uh, so that's how we're currently sitting. I think we would love to see rates come down because it would make cars more affordable. You know, today, uh, if a, a customer is buying a car, it probably costs about 10% more relative to other goods in the economy than it did pre-pandemic. If they're financing a car, their payment is probably about 20% higher relative to other goods in the economy than it was pre-pandemic. And so the combined effect of both the price inflation in, in used cars and monthly payments is, is greater than just the price effect. We would love to see prices come down. We'd love to see rates come down. Um, but that's something that we're certainly not in control of. And we just got to position the business, do the best we can in, in whatever environment we're in. Wow, 20% higher for the same car, uh, given the price dynamic and the financing cost. That's a shocking statistic, uh, but that's just the reality we're living in right now. Uh, Ernie, thank you. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Meantime, shares of Block surging this morning after a surprise profit. CFO is going to join us on the other side of this break as we have lost some opening gains. S&P now red at 50.85. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Another strong uh, session for uh, back on the back of gains of Q4 earnings. Look at Block as an example. Top and the bottom line uh, beats with the company announcing a surprise profit to close out 2024. And joining us for a closer look at the quarter, CNBC exclusive is Block CFO and COO Amrita Huja. Amrita, it's great to have you back. A uh, lot of questions and interest in sort of the drivers behind uh, the guide up today. Thanks so much for having me, Carl. It's great to be here. We had a really strong Q4 to end 2023 and carry us with momentum into 2024. We grew 22% year over year in the fourth quarter to close out the year with 25% growth at scale at $7.5 billion in gross profit with strength across each of our two ecosystems, both Cash App and Square, growing strongly to end the year. And we delivered our highest profitability ever on an adjusted EBITDA and adjusted operating income basis in 2023. We've now raised our guide as we head into 2024 on a profit basis by more than $200 million. And we're excited with our opportunities to serve our customers ahead of us. 
Uh, we had gone into the quarter with some upgrades, a lot of uh, discussion about better pricing leverage. Would you argue the guidance is more due to better monetization, let's say, of Cash App or some of the, the tough steps you've taken up into now uh, on efficiency, for example? Yes, we have definitely made uh, constraints on our business, created constraints on our business because we believe constraints are clarifying. They help us focus our priorities, our strategies, our scope. Um, as a result of that, we've delivered strong incremental profitability each of the last four or five quarters and heading into 2024. But our focus now is on growth and on product velocity. We're looking to improve the pace at which we bring products to market across each of Square and Cash App. And what you've seen in our earnings materials the past couple of quarters is Jack has reframed our strategy. For Square, it's about taking the complexity out of commerce. And we've got four key priorities to do that across the Square ecosystem. And for Cash App, it's about banking our base, delivering more in terms of financial services products that add value to our customers who we know uh, are in so in need of cash flow management uh, products and features and have used products like Cash App Card with increasing daily utility now with 23 million monthly actives on our prepaid debit card that's been incredibly successful for us. How big of a, a headwind is kind of regulation for this strategy for growth? You've got the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau uh, proposed treating companies that offer digital wallets more like banks. Uh, regulators are looking into Cash App and its due diligence on customers. And there are also potential rules uh, to rein in buy now, pay later services like Afterpay. So how are you thinking about the regulatory environment kind of amid this quest to, to grow the business? You know, ultimately, we uh, welcome efforts to ensure that uh, the appropriate regulatory protections are put in place for consumers um, and that providers like us are meeting those high standards for customers um, and delivering positive outcomes for customers. That's what we strive to do. We have a history of uh, engaging with regulators to serve those goals and maintaining constructive relationships. We'll continue to do that. Um, from a compliance perspective, we're making significant investments across our compliance platform and customer service platforms to ensure that we can continue to do that for our customers. And in terms of the, the payoff here, I mean, the analysts have really touted the cash app and the focus on making it a neobank as, as kind of key for you. Um, where do you see it as the biggest white space in this very competitive ecosystem? What is what is the edge here? Yeah. What we're looking to do is reinvent banking for our customers uh, so they can run more of their financial lives within Cash App. What we're targeting is households with $150,000 in income or less, which is 80% of consumers in the U.S. and about 50% of household income. It's a significant market and an important one because we believe it's been underserved by traditional financial institutions in the past. So we have a three-part strategy. First, to bank our base. We have 56 million monthly transacting actives in Cash App as of December, two million of them who are paycheck direct deposit customers. We see a significant opportunity to bring our tens of millions of customers into our financial services products. Secondly, we'll move up market with our families offering, uh, which we've launched over the past couple of years, bringing teens into the financial lexicon and landscape and growing with them as they become the uh, earners and spenders of the future. 
Uh, and third is to become the next gen social bank. Um, Cash App is inherently social as a peer to peer platform. And these are long term initiatives for us, but we see a significant opportunity if we can execute. You know, you ask around the street, Amrita, and uh, you do get some comments like restaurants and BNPL. Are there ways to either catch up or get more aggressive within those silos? What do you think? We uh, are prioritizing our work with restaurants within Square. Food and beverage is our top priority uh, vertical. And we're addressing that through improvements in our platform to improve product offerings for restaurants, food and beverage, the food and beverage vertical. Uh, are, we're importantly focusing on our banking products within Square as well, which have been very high NPS, very high product fit, and have grown disproportionately on our platform, 28% growth in the fourth quarter relative to 18% growth for the overall Square platform. So we see these products resonating for small businesses, and we want to go even deeper there. Buy Now, Pay Later is a great way for consumers to be able to manage their cash flows. It's sort of a working capital product that enables them to continue to participate in commerce. And it brings merchants more opportunities to access uh, young demographics and attractive next-gen consumers. So these are critical parts of our portfolio and our buy now, pay later platform grew by 25% in the fourth quarter as well. And these products are growing at scale. So we'll continue our product velocity to enhance each of these features. Uh, finally, I know Jack's title uh, is still Blockhead, Squarehead, Chairman and Co-Founder, but I won't, it won't surprise you to, to know that the street's really interested in the degree of his involvement and whether or not that's changing. Jack is fully engaged in our business. He wrote each of our last two shareholder letters where we reframed our Square strategy and now more recently our Cash App strategy, which we've talked about today. He architected our investment framework, which is our intention to hit rule of 40 on a gross profit growth plus adjusted operating income margin basis in 2026. And we've made consistent in, uh, progress against that investment framework throughout 2023 and have committed to make progress in 2024. And he's in, um, instilled the constraints that we're acting against in our business. He and the rest of us are now focused on improving our product velocity so that we can do even more for our customers. All stock has uh, basically doubled since Halloween, uh, zeroing in on almost a 52-week high uh, today, Amrita. Really appreciate the, the time and guidance. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Thanks so much for having me. Amrita Huja, a block. Warner Brothers Discovery down big this morning, more than 12%. A closer look at that quarter next. Money Movers is back in a moment. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back to Money Movers. I'm Pippa Stevens, and this is your CNBC News Update. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu released a detailed post-war vision of Gaza for the first time today. The plan would see Israel seeking open-ended control over security and civilian affairs in the Gaza Strip. The outline defies the vision from the U.S. to create a Palestinian state at the conclusion of the war. Meanwhile, family members of hostages still being held by Hamas blocked a busy road in Tel Aviv this morning, pleading with the government to bring their loved ones home. They set up an empty Shabbat table with empty chairs to represent the estimated 100-plus people still in captivity. 
Hamas said today it wrapped up ceasefire talks in Egypt and is waiting to see what mediators bring back from weekend discussions with Israel. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is leading a Democratic congressional delegation in Ukraine today in the show of support on the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of the country. The visit comes as House Republicans are stalling on a foreign aid package to send billions of dollars in funding to Kyiv. Carl, back to you. Uh, Pippa, thanks very much. Pippa Stevens. Still to come this morning, surprise winners and losers in the surge of GLP-1 drug interests. Results from Morgan Stanley's new survey are coming up next. New survey results from the desk of Morgan Stanley this week tackling the recent surge in consumer interest over GLP-1 drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi. Joining us now with the winners and losers of this trend, Morgan Stanley's Pamela Kaufman. Uh, Pamela, what did your what did your survey find exactly? Hi, and thanks for having me. Um, so we're closely tracking the impacts of weight loss drugs um, in terms of the consumer adoption and the impact on consumer spending. And my focus is on the packaged food space. Uh, we're leveraging numerator data, which tracks spending about across about 150,000 households. And they've now run two surveys, one in January and one in October, um, that gauges the growth in the number of people taking GLP-1 drugs for weight loss, um, the consumer interest, and they can. we're also analyzing receipts to see how it's impacting their spending. So what we're seeing is continued growth in drug adoption. Um, based on the latest survey, around 12% of households surveyed are indicating that someone is taking uh, a weight loss drug. Uh, and that's up from 11% in October. Uh, since there is about two and a half uh, people per household, this translates into about 5% of the population that's now taking a GLP-1 drug for either weight loss or diabetes. Uh, and within that group, what's really interesting is that about one and a half percent of people are on solely for weight loss. But what we're seeing is much faster growth among people taking the drugs for weight loss versus diabetes. And I think what is uh, interesting within the weight loss group is about there's been about 30 percent growth in people taking the drugs to lose under 15 pounds. Um, and that points to increasing interest in people to, uh, in taking these drugs for aesthetic reasons. Uh, so overall, you know, what we're seeing is clearly there uh, is increasing interest in the drugs. There's an impact on grocery spending and changes in consumer preferences for the types of foods that they like to eat. Uh, when taking the drugs, and you know that's going to translate into an impact on packaged food companies and my coverage. So, based on this survey, you see winners as being the types of consumer food companies that are offering healthier items, uh, and the potential losers being those that don't have as as much exposure to kind of the health world. Is that is that the gist of it? That's right. I, I think, you know, when you kind of take a step back, you know, there is an impact on grocery spend. Um, so in terms of grocery spending, people who take GLP-1 drugs for weight loss spend about $150 more per month on groceries than the broader population. I think that it's for multiple reasons. I think that they are more affluent, the households are larger, there's kids, but they also just generally spend more on food overall. 
Um, and then once they do take uh, the drugs, their grocery spending falls much more than the broader population. So there's about a six to nine percent reduction in how much they're spending on groceries compared to other households. But I think coming back to your question, uh, about 80% of people have said that they see changes in their eating preferences, with about 30% pointing to major changes in their preferences and cravings for food. So the biggest changes that we're seeing in terms of uh, preferences are people are cutting back more on less healthy foods like sweets candy, ice cream, pastries, and then increasing their consumption of healthier foods like vegetables, fish, and uh, proteins like yogurt. Uh, so within my coverage, yeah. the companies that should benefit are the ones that have exposure to healthier categories like Bellring brands and Simply Good Foods, and then um, a more negative impact on companies like Hershey, which have high exposure to snacking and sweets. Yeah. Uh, well, Pamela Kaufman, uh, thank you so much for sharing these results of this pretty shocking survey. 12% of households uh, now have someone who's using these drugs. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Speaking of landmark uh, drug treatments, patients afflicted by sickle cell disease, predominantly African-American, are closely watching the government's coming talks with drug makers over access to new medicines. Our Bertha Coombs details the equity and the opportunity in health care there. For Michael Goodwin, crippling pain from sickle cell disease makes life unpredictable. I could be in the hospital 20 days out of a month sometimes, which hurts me because I have a son now. Still, he's leery of new gene therapies, which require months of intensive medical prep. And then there's the cost. Vertex's Casjevi lists for over $2 million. Bluebird Bio's Lifgenia for over $3 million. I do have insurance, but those... I mean, I, I already have medical bills. Goodwin's hesitancy doesn't surprise Dr. Julie Cantor, director of the Adult Sickle Cell Center at University of Alabama at Birmingham. My guess is even if we opened the gates today to everybody getting this therapy, at most only 10% of those individuals affected by sickle cell would want this therapy. Uh, and even that would be too much for us to manage right this second. More than 100,000 Americans have sickle cell disease, according to the CDC, with 50 to 60 percent of them covered by Medicaid. Dr. Cantor says it will take time to ramp up capacity to treat patients at scale. In the meantime, states are grappling with how to ramp up access for those on Medicaid. The immediate consideration is the cost. Uh, it is very high, and state budgets simply cannot manage that on their own. The Biden administration is launching negotiations with Bluebird Bio and Vertex for Medicaid plan discounts with payments tied to health outcomes. For Michael Goodwin, the outcome is key. If they could guarantee me the outcome that I wouldn't have sickle cell, I would do it in a heartbeat. Researchers like Dr. Cantor hesitate to call the treatments a cure. But, you know, during Vertex's recent earnings call, the COO said that they've already signed outcome-based agreements with a number of individual Medicaid plans. And he said they're confident because so few people fail to respond. Both Vertex and Bluebird anticipate starting treatments for their very first patients in the coming weeks. Bertha, why, why is the cost so high? Is there an input uh, material into these treatments that make it high, or is it because they're still so nascent they haven't been able to really produce and, and offer them at scale yet? 
They're, you know, they're very new and it's taken a long time to get here. So it's it's all the old idea of having to recoup the costs of that. And they're very involved because it involves taking someone's bone marrow, then treating that bone marrow to change the sickle cell, the, the genetic component of it, and then putting it back. It's a one-time thing. And when you look at what the lifetime costs, they can be a million, maybe two million dollars for someone who suffers and needing to have blood transfusions and going to the hospital. The problem is paying for that all in one fell swoop, you know, at once in one right. year. Right. Yeah. It's it's not being amortized. You're just doing it in one kind of lump sum payment, and that that differs the equation for insurance providers and, and state offers uh, providers as well. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. Coming up, Reddit files for an IPO, and Sam Altman wins again. Money Movers returns in just a moment. Reddit filing for its long-awaited IPO, the first social media company to go public in years, and it could present a big boon for OpenAI's Sam Altman. Deirdre Bosa digs into that for today's Tech Check. D, I saw this in the filing, and I, I was like, wait, what? Like 9% of the stock I had to go back and Google. I was like, is that known? Um, but it's certainly an interesting development in this story. Then you know what, Leslie, you're going to be even more shocked at his investment web, which I'm going to go into. <laughs> but let's talk the news first. Reddit, it's a nearly 20-year-old startup that is still losing money. We talked a few weeks ago about the IPOs that we'll get this year versus the ones that the market really wants. Reddit is in the first bucket and so perhaps more interesting than its implications for the IPO market at large arts ties to text person and startup of the moment, Sam Altman, of course, and OpenAI. Now, over about a decade, Altman has invested at least $60 million in the company, giving him a nearly 10% stake. That's larger than that of CEO Steve Huffman's. Now, Altman was even CEO of Reddit for eight days back in 2014, and he sat on the board as recently as 2021. So I was as surprised as Leslie, and I started looking into the empire of Altman, and it turns out that it is broader and more complex than many might have thought. Now, he has invested in some of the hottest startups of recent years, including Stripe, Instacart, Cruise, and Humane of the AI pin that you might have seen demos of. More than 125 companies since 2010, according to PitchBook. And that spans EdTech, blockchain, aviation, and of course, he has many investments in AI even investing while he's been building his own AI company, OpenAI. Now, his investment vehicles, they are just as sprawling. There is Hydrazine Capital. That's an investment firm that he founded with his two brothers. CB Insights also lists Apollo Projects and Altman Capital. There's also his personal investments that go back to his time heading up Y Combinator, the incubator. And let's not forget that he is the owner of OpenAI's venture capital fund that last May reported $175 million in total commitments. Now it was only, that fund was only supposed to be temporarily in Altman's name, but remains part of his investment empire as of now. Now sometimes this web gets even more complicated, like in the case of Reddit. Altman and OpenAI are now seen as competition. In the IPO prospectus that came out yesterday in the risk factor section, Reddit lists large language models like ChatGPT, also mentions Anthropic and Gemini as competitors. Yesterday, Google announced that it has struck a deal with Reddit to use its content for training its Gemini models worth about $60 million a year. Given Altman's stake in history with Reddit, it does make you wonder why they didn't go 
to OpenAI because I'm sure there's a lot of questions because this web is just vast. It goes far, far beyond Reddit, which is only, as I found out this morning, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I'm so glad you broke this down for us, Deirdre, because you bring up a really good point about governance. I mean, this is a company that has multiple classes of stock, and Altman's ownership here gives him almost a 10% uh, voting power in the company. And so, you know, how do you kind of square that with different decisions about licensing deals, say, with someone that is a competitor uh, to OpenAI? Yeah. Uh, obviously, one of uh, Altman's probably uh, key focus these days, one of his key focuses these days. And then there's another layer on top of that is now Reddit is making its content available to Google, which runs Gemini, which is a competitor to OpenAI. So um, there's a lot of this because we're still so early in this industry. Remember Reid Hoffman too, he was on the OpenAI board, he stepped off and there's many, <laughs> I mean, even look at Brett Taylor, he's funding his own, he's starting his own generative AI company and he's on the board, the chairman of OpenAI. So we're just trying to sort of go through this and figure it out, but this industry is so new and there's so much innovation already that this is likely to be sorted out in the weeks and days ahead. It is, I will say though, very interesting that the OpenAI VC fund is still in Sam Altman's name because it's not like they're strangers to corporate um, policy and governance issues <laughs> as we've seen over the last year. Yeah, we've learned a lot about uh, management structure in the last couple of months, D. Uh, pretty fascinating. Thank you, Deirdre Bosa, today. Coming up next, the former CEO of the NFL Network on Warner Brothers Discovery Earnings and this coming sports streaming bundle. Stay with us. Warner Brothers Discovery down significantly this morning. Julia Borston has more on the quarter. Julia. Lastly, Warner Brothers Discovery shares are plummeting this morning. They're now down nearly 11% after the company missed analyst targets on both the top and the bottom line with a per share loss of 16 cents. That's more than double the loss that was expected. This is the company saw the impact of the strike hurt studio revenue while linear TV advertising dropped 14%. But on the upside, the company's direct to consumer division turned a profit for the full year. This makes WBD the first media company to have a streaming platform report full year profitability. Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav stressing the growth of its streaming platform Max, noting that subscribers are up 2% with more international expansion coming. As we look to the future now with Max profitable, we think we can build that. And, uh, and, and so we like where we are. Uh, we do have the optionality of looking at other assets, um, but it's going to be a very high bar for us. We like our hand where it is, and we like we like the 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 our particular strategy right now of building Max. Always speculation about M and A there. His comments about other assets. Zaslav also spoke about the recently announced sports streaming venture that they are doing with Disney and Fox, saying that it makes sense to serve the 60 million households who aren't part of the traditional pay TV ecosystem. He also said that the ease of bundled content is very pro-consumer. That's subtly responding to the allegations of Fubo TV's lawsuit that the streaming bundle is anti-competitive. Carl. That's a good setup, Julia. Thank you for that. That's our Julia Borston. For more on the sports bundle, let's bring in former NFL Network CEO Steve Bornstein on what the future of sports streaming looks like and if more consolidation is ahead. Steve, what a pleasure for us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
uh, there have been so many questions since this was announced. Management structure, ownership structure, pricing. Julia mentioned antitrust. And, and how to launch it without accelerating the downfall of uh, cable television. What are your overall thoughts about it? Well, you know, I think this is a pretty exciting opportunity. The press release got a lot of attention. What ultimately will happen, I think, is you got to protect the, the core bundle. And what these three companies are trying to do is to thread a very, very uh, uh, difficult needle about how to not encroach on the, uh, uh, on the increased, enhanced uh, deterioration of the bundle while maintaining choice for consumers, which obviously is a positive. When it comes to pricing, what do you see as the sweet spot? And is it really trying to draw those who have nothing at the moment or help those who already have cable graduate to something more concentrated? Well, if they're trying to help people who already have cable, then they're, uh, they're decaying the bundle faster than they, than they want to. The whole economic underpinning of the linear ecosystem is the, is the bundle staying intact. So they have pretty specifically said that they're trying to get the, you know, never uh, 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 subscribers to subscribe to this product. And I think that's going to be a difficult, uh, as I said, a difficult road to hope. But, you know, to me, they're, they're not being revolutionary here. They're throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. <laughs> well, that's, uh, I guess, what Fubo's argument is in terms of antitrust. How valid do you think their argument is? Well, I'm not someone qualified to talk about the antitrust merits in this case, but to me, uh, offering a bundle of sports services is, 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 seems to be pro-consumer and pro-choice, so I would be, think they have a difficult road to hold. What about in terms of competition for others outside of this group? I mean, is it anti-competitive for them? I don't know if it's anti-competitive. It's, it's kind of a kludgy uh, uh, result because... You're, you're representing, you know, somewhere between 15 and 60 percent of the sports choices that are currently in the bundle. So if you buy this bundle, you still have, you know, almost half, a little less than half of the content out there that's not a participant in it. So to me, it's not really a, 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 a wholesale solution to it, but it's a step. And I think they're trying to see how the market reacts to the press release, whether it actually gets launched or not remains to be seen. There's also the issue of whether or not the various owners have competing interests at the same time. Who would run this? Do you think the job of, of helming this is fraught, or is this can this, is this doable? Well, I mean, history will show you that these kind of coalitions of different media companies are really difficult to navigate. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of, you know, you've got three partners and probably four opinions on just about every uh, <laughs> action item that will come up. <laughs> well, at the very least, Steve, it does, it does come at a moment where at least NFL is just an enormous tailwind uh, for consumption. I just wonder, given your thoughts about the season we just wrapped up, how that accelerates into the, the next season. Well, I think the NFL is the platinum standard of sports programming in this country. But I think all, all boats have been lifted by its success. I think you'll find a wonderful NBA season, a new great baseball season, postseason college basketball is coming up. Sports, you know, together is, is becoming even more of a sequoia in that forest out there. And I think all boats, again, will be lifted by uh, the NFL's success. And, and the future looks very bright. Yeah. 
Steve, it's good to get your thoughts. We're going to monitor this with your help, hopefully down the road. Have a good weekend. Steve you Boyd too. Thanks so much. Talking about the SSB as it's come, become known on the street. <laughs> Meantime, uh, managing to hold at least close to levels near 5100, yeah. and we got a busy week next week with Salesforce and more Fed speak and even some eco data, GDP revisions, and so forth. Have a good weekend. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.